This is Writing Excuses, episode 20, question and answers. 15 minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. And we have Eric James Stone joining us at Conduit here. Um, he's an author of numerous short stories, um, has been published all over the place, and we're glad to have him. Say hi, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. We're going to do question and answer again from the audience. We've got another question from Kaylin, so come on up. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, with the last podcast being on um, plot twists, um, how necessary are they? I mean, you have M. Night Shyamalan, where it's yeah. very much, you know, very much the twist is the whole thing, it seems like, at the end. Um, do we need plot twists? Do we need plot twists? And can you have, like, small plot twists? I okay. mean, how, how big do they have to be? Howard, you were... Uh, short answer, yes, we need plot twists. And I think it is because, at least in the market that most of us are writing towards, the format, the, the, not the format, the form, the three-act form, dictates some sort of twist, some sort of change in the middle of Act 2, where the expectations that were set in Act 1 have been defied, and the conflict that needs to be resolved is either bigger or shaped differently or something. In the best case, your plot twist in Act 2 is one that makes it so that your hero in Plot 1 is way out of his depth. The skill set that he brings to the table is not the one that will work. And the point of all this is that it's what our readers have come to expect. We are writing this way because we expect to read this way. Hmm. If you watch a lot of anime, or uh, Asian cinema, you'll find yourself confused because they do not adhere to the three-act format. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a great example of a head-scratcher where you don't know what to expect during the film. It's a beautiful film and it's a wonderful story, but I, it does not have yeah. plot twists. I think that it also has to deal with the genre you're writing it and what you're trying to do. Um, if, I often say, when you're writing a book, focus on your strengths. Um, at least you want, you want to practice doing your weaknesses, but you want your book to focus on your strengths. And not yes. every book has to have a twist like Ender's Game. It just doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. Now, you do have to have conflict. You have to have things go wrong. But they don't, if you're not good at the dramatic reveal that changes everything, I say don't put it in. Oh, you don't need the, you don't need the world changing reveal, yeah. but yeah. there has to be some People sort of twist. Read mm -hmm. romance novels a lot. And every romance novel is going to have plot twists, but those are in, you know, parenthes or those have quotes around them because they're all, everyone's expecting the plot twist. Exactly. They're following the formula. And the formula of that is they don't want to be surprised. They don't want to get to the end of the romance novel and find out she doesn't get together with him. Um, that is not a plot twist they want to have happen. And in that, that genre, that's fine. I think that in, um, in science fiction particularly, the plot twist is much more important. In, um, and in adventure fiction, um, whether it be thrillers or whatnot, you need to have the plot twist. In mysteries, they are king. You have to be able to outthink your reader. In yeah, that. you need more than one. Yeah, and you need more mm -hmm. than one. In fantasy, it really depends on what genre of fantasy you're writing in. Um, and I think you can have the small little bit plot twists in the things go wrong. The characters think everything's going right, things get worse. Those I think you need to include. Yeah, I, th I think uh, bring, bringing in uh, Shyamalan into our discussion of plot twists may have confused the issue a little because the Shyamalan plot twist is a very specific, very wrenching, recontextualizing the entire story kind of plot twist. And right. that's not the only kind. You can have just that's little true. surprises. And uh, 
Oh no, he walked spectrum. into the coffee shop with another girl. Yeah. What do I do? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it can be that, but you do need to have it change. It can't be exactly what the reader's expecting, um, unless you're writing certain genres, which we'll name unnamed. Oh yeah, Eric. Uh, and it can be <laughs> as small. Barge in on us, Eric. Yeah. It can Tell be as small up. as just changing a line of dialogue to the opposite of what you've originally written. Mm. I found that uh, it was recommended to me as a way to break writer's block. If you're stuck somewhere, have the take the last line of dialogue you wrote and have the character say the opposite. And then you have to figure out, well, why did he say that? Huh. And it leads your plot on, on a different path than you were going originally. And that gives you, a, and that's a small twist generally, but it gives you something to yeah. work with. Mm -hmm. I like that. Very nice. Okay, we're going to take a question from me now because we've still got Mike Stackpole here. And I know he's, it, there's a certain topic he likes to talk on. And I want to hear what he has to say and what the panelist has to say. My question is, how is how is the market changing in the with the electronic media and how can writers either take advantage of this or what do they need to be aware of if you're an aspiring writer trying to break in right now what do you need to know about how the market is changing well i think a lot of things are going on in the market that are going to make it very different inside five years for most of the people who are writing right now and want to break into the conventional market they're probably going to be okay because conventional publishing is still going to need a lot of work so the path that they're on right now is going to be it's going to be one that will work. Um, for everybody else, there's going to be a commoditization of fiction, and it's not so much how long you're writing; it's how long it will take to read that stuff. Mm -hmm. So short stories, uh, say that would take about thirty minutes to read, are now very commute friendly or lunch hour friendly. Mm -hmm. Making sure a novel breaks down into uh, you know chapter lumps that are you know two chapters uh, right. with, your, with your lunch or, or you know, it's very friendly to be on a plane and you can just knock down a few things. Because you know, if everybody, if you're using an iPhone to read or using a Kindle or using a Sony e-reader, um, it doesn't matter the number of pages. Right. You're going to be looking at how much time do I have to read uh, and you're not picking, it, while some people will still have books as that, you know, just uh, total escapist, I'm taking, the, I'm taking the day off and I'm just going to throw myself into this novel thing. For the vast majority of people, because we're already carrying around these devices, yeah. um, we're going to look at how do I now get the biggest bang for my buck out of this device. Well, you're, uh, Michael, you're podcasting one of your books. Right. And so that book now has to be podcast, which means commute friendly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it works out. I mean, I do chapters that are 2,500 words long, roughly 2,500 to 3,000 words long, specifically because that makes a book a very fast read. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that those chapters, you know, when they're read is for a podcast, are somewhere between 13 and 17 minutes long. So that suddenly, you know, you can knock off two chapters right. in a commute or two chapters over lunch. And so it suddenly becomes very consumer friendly in that regard. 15 minutes long because you're actually really smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one other thing I've noticed about the way it's changing is audiobooks. Um, and this is just, you know, a, a heads up. It seems like in the past, sci-fi fantasy, particularly fantasy, rarely got audiobooks. You had to be really, really big name. And just in the last year, all the publishing forums that I watch and the um, newsletters and things, everyone's been talking all of a sudden about um, about timing. Or not timing, you're talking about timing. Talking about audiobooks. And suddenly, I've had four offers on audiobooks, on my books, out of nowhere. These are big, epic fantasies. And um, I think audios are really taking off, particularly things like Audible and whatnot. And as more people are carrying these devices, they'll be willing. You know, audiobooks in the past, you had to go buy, pay 150 bucks and get this thing with a ton of CDs and switch CDs and 
uh, it was crazy. Well, see, here's the funny thing. All right, it was only only except for the last uh, you know for the last uh, say 70, 80 years that what we were doing was churning out literature. Prior to that, we were entertainers. Mm-hmm. Well, now with the coming of electronic books and, and, and the fact that we can now sell direct to end users yeah. and we can cut out the cut out the, the publishers. I mean, if you look at it, traditional publishing could be a 150-year aberration in mm-hmm. entertainment, in fictional entertainment. And we're basically now, instead of having to go yeah. to the bars and, and, and sing for our supper, you know, we just put it up on our website. That's and, the business and, I'm yeah, in, well, what Howard you, does. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is... This is going to be happening with fiction uh, a lot more. And the problem for traditional publishing is that they only own the electronic rights on novels starting in about 1996. Uh And since now we're in 2008, they've got 12 years worth of novels, and no writer needs to sell them electronic versions of any novels anymore because we can sell them, we can sell direct. Well, so and they're in trouble. Yeah, it's, I, I, I've been fascinated by the webcomic industry. Howard makes a full-time living by doing his art, putting it on the internet, and being supported by his readers. And the music industry is discovering that this, is, this can d- destroy the traditional model. Now, I'll say with traditional publishing, I really like having a copy editor, and I really like having my editor, and these sorts of things. But can't you have those? Yeah, but I could have those directly myself. I don't know. Um, you know, Tor I, does. My, yeah. let, me, let, me, yeah. let me interrupt real quickly. Uh, my work is growing enough in, in revenue that I can afford to hire a contract copy editor, and I probably should. It may be that copy editing and proofing and that kind of thing becomes a contract service rather than an in-house service. Absolutely. I mean, look, here's the, the big problem for traditional publishing is this. Their business is not and never has been bringing uh, us fiction. Mm-hmm. It has been bringing to stores blocks of wood. Mm-hmm. Their whole business is, is, is built around printing, warehousing, and shipping wood. Um, so, you know, they're not that vital anymore. We can find editors. We can find copy editors. We can, we can find workarounds very easily. Yeah. And, you know, here's the deal. I mean, I already sell short stories off my website. All right? If I sell a short story for two bucks, I make more off of that sale than I make off of selling two $8 paperbacks. And mm-hmm. I get that money before the person downloads the story, as opposed to waiting for nine to fifteen months for a publisher to send me my eighty cents. That's a good point. It's a very good point. Now, one, um, of, one of the places yeah. that I'm very excited to see uh, print media go or digital media go is uh, the return of the serial. That's you know right back to the Charles Dickens chapter a week in the newspaper kind of idea. We can do that again. I think that's where. This industry is headed. This week, Writing Excuses is brought to you by Hold On to Your Horses, the new book from Sandra Taylor, illustrated by Angela Call. It's a children's story. Ideas are like horses, but Amy's tend to run wild. With a little help, Amy learns how to guide her ideas in constructive ways. Hold On to Your Horses has a free PDF available at www.holdontoyourhorses.com. Okay. Eric, you got anything on this? Well, it makes me glad I'm writing short fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're writing and you're putting it up on Anthology Builder. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Anthology Builder is actually a, a great idea. Basically, it lets you go pick out the stories you want and you uh, print them up in a, a volume so that you can uh, read them yeah, whenever you want. They print up a volume and send it to you, and it has only the stories you want in it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's anthologybuilder.com. Okay. Excuse me. Bob, did you have a question you were going to throw at us? Sure. 
Okay, this is blindsiding us. We have no clue what Bob is going to say. So, but we um, know it will be entertaining. Yeah. This is Get Bob right up Fendi, to the mic, Bob. Game designer and writer. How do you make your um, protagonists as interesting as your villains? Okay, how do you make your protagonists <laughs> as interesting as your villains? Oh, well, I'll, I'll take the first answer yeah. on this one because I'm cheating. I'm yeah. writing psychological horror, so I just really blurred the line. You, d <laughs> you just don't know which one is the hero and which one is the villain in, in the, my first book, and that's kind of the whole point. So, Oh, my gosh, go. that's what I'm doing. <laughs> there! I just realized that. I'm writing a story about space mercenaries who are actually the good guys with questionable... Mer Morality, not mortality, mm -hmm. although that's questionable too. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're killing people and breaking things for money, but they're the good. Thank you for explaining to me okay. why my characters no are interesting. That's, I, a, that's my plot twist for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, villains are often more interesting than heroes because villains have the better conflict. Um, the conflict makes the character interesting. And so my answer to that is make sure your heroes have good conflicts. If your heroes have wimpy conflicts, then they're going to be wimpy characters. Um, and if your heroes have really good, deep, interesting conflicts, they'll be as interesting as the villains. You know, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I like to make my uh, protagonist be someone who's competent, but not overly so. Essentially, you want, you want, in order to have somebody who has a conflict, can't be somebody who's a Superman. Yeah. We've already well. So he's not an ex-Green Beret concert pianist brain surgeon. That works really for good some at DDR. That works for some <laughs> That works for some stories. <laughs> I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one one of the reasons that villains are so much more interesting is because they in most stories are much more active. Yeah. And the heroes oh, are entirely reactive. They spend yeah. all their time trying to keep all, you know, trying to keep up with the villain. And so if you can make your heroes much more active so that they're actually doing things instead of just running David, David Gerald has a great point on that. He says that essentially for the first half of the story, the, the antagonist is driving the story, but for the second half of the story, your protagonist should be driving it. He words it this way, uh, in the first half, the monster chases you. In the second half, you chase the monster. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, that's a good Which point. is pretty much how my book is structured. It's also so. you does it, too. Yeah. <laughs> and he would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you kids. <laughs> Okay, um, let's do a question via email for us. This comes from Justin. Um, what are some guidelines for how much to sell a story for? Have there been times when you haven't sold a story to someone because they pay was too low? This is going to be an interesting one. Uh, what's the answer to that? Wow, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way I sell my stuff. Howard yeah. just yeah. puts stuff up and hopes people pay him. As, a, as yep. a short story writer, generally you want to go for the pro-paying markets. Those are the ones that pay five cents a word or more. Okay, there you And go. those are the ones that will qualify you for SIFWA, the Science Fiction yeah. Fantasy Writers of America. You can sell them for less than that if they don't sell for more. Yeah, start at the top. Yes. Yeah. But you have to, to ask yourself if you really want to bother sending it out that much if you aren't going to get paid that much for it. Okay. Um, on the, no the novel length, you know, it really depends on where, where you're going. There are a lot of reputable small presses that aren't going to be paying a whole lot. Um, I keep hearing the number 5,000 bandied about as what being a good advance for a first novel is. Um, I would say, you know, if you're not being offered at least 1,000 bucks on your novel, you're probably not getting 
um, yeah, you're, it's, that's probably not someone to take. But you know, it depends on the situation. Um, this, Justin also asks, do you recommend writing for anthologies, and how do you find out about how to write for anthologies? Since we've got you here, Eric, as a short story writer, hit us. Well, uh, there's there are a number of places online where you can read about different markets for short fiction. Uh, Raylan.com, R-A-L-A-N.com is a good place to look. It will list most of the anthology markets for science fiction and fantasy. And also there's word of mouth and uh, networking, getting to know people who are editors. And hopefully at some point they'll invite you to submit to their anthology. I, yeah, I, I can't preach to that one highly enough. My wife's very first ever short story submission was accepted in an anthology because she was invited to participate by an editor who was at a science fiction convention that she was attending because she was there with me. The upshot, attend conventions because that is where you can do yeah. the networking. Yeah. That's where the word of mouth happens. You if you are not at these events. Uh, anthologies without, without no. networking the, some way, even if it's just through email and things. Yeah. The, the one thing to be, be very careful with with anthologies though is uh, a lot of them are very specific. You know, If there's mm -hmm. one that's all about space pirates and you write a space pirate story that does not get accepted, it's then going to have to compete with 500 other space pirate stories that didn't get accepted that are being that people are trying to sell to other magazines. And so you might end up with a bunch of stuff that you can't do anything yeah. with. Then again, I wrote a story for a Zeppelin anthology and it didn't get Was accepted. Is that Jay Licks? Yes. Okay. And but I sold it to Analog. Oh, so well, there you go. It worked out. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And then on the 499 other people couldn't sell their Zeppelin story to Analog because <laughs> you right. did first. Mhm. Mm Okay. We're all blimps anyways. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and... <laughs> what was that? I have no idea. I've got ZDR on one side and blimps on the other side. Okay, and we're going to call it. That's, this has been Writing Excuses. <laughs> thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us, Eric. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Eric. Oh, and Michael, oh, hey. thank you. Yes, and Michael and for Bob. jumping in and, and Bob for the one question. And yes, and Dan we'll, we'll throw links to all you ago. lovely people up. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks. Bye. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.